Chapter Three of Notes on the Book of Genesis by Charles Henry Mackintosh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Christopher Smith. Chapter Three. This section of our book sets before us the breaking up of the whole scene on which we have been dwelling. It abounds in very weighty principles and has very justly been in all ages resorted to as a most fruitful theme for those who desired to set forth the truth as to man's ruin and god's remedy the serpent enters with a bold question as to divine revelation terrible model and forerunner of all infidel questions since raised by those who have alas too faithfully served the serpent's cause in the world questions which are only to be met by the supreme authority and divine majesty of holy scripture yea hath god said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden this was satan's crafty inquiry and had the word of god been dwelling richly in eve's heart her answer might have been direct simple and conclusive the true way in which to meet satan's questions and suggestions is to treat them as his and repel them by the word to let them near the heart for a moment is to lose the only power by which to answer them the devil did not openly present himself and say i am the devil the enemy of god and i am come to traduce him and ruin you this would not be serpents like and yet he really did all this by raising questions in the mind of the creature to admit the question hath god said when i know that god has spoken is positive infidelity and the very fact of my admitting it proves my total incapacity to meet it hence in eve's case the form of her reply evidenced the fact that she had admitted to her heart the serpent's crafty inquiry instead of adhering strictly to the exact words of god she in her reply actually adds thereto now either to add to or take from god's word proves very clearly that his word is not dwelling in my heart or governing my conscience if a man is finding his enjoyment in obedience if it is his meat and his drink if he is living by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of jehovah he will assuredly be acquainted with and fully alive to his word he could not be indifferent to it the lord jesus in his conflict with satan accurately applied the word because he lived upon it and esteemed it more than his necessary food he could not misquote or misapply the word neither could he be indifferent about it not so eve she added to what god had said his commandment was simple enough thou shalt not eat of it to this eve adds her own words neither shall ye touch it these were eve's words and not god's he had said nothing about touching so that whether her misquotation proceeded from ignorance or indifference or a desire to represent god in an arbitrary light or from all three together it is plain that she was entirely off the true ground of simple confidence in and subjection to god's holy word by the words of thy mouth i have kept me from the paths of the destroyer nothing can possess more commanding interest than the way in which the word is everywhere put forward throughout the sacred canon together with the immense importance of strict obedience thereto 
obedience is due from us to god's word simply because it is his word we are in the place of the creature he is the creator he may therefore justly claim obedience from us the infidel may call this blind obedience but the christian calls it intelligent obedience inasmuch as it is based upon the knowledge that it is god's word to which he is obedient if a man had not god's word he might well be said to be in blindness and darkness for there is not so much as a single ray of divine light within or around us but what emanates from god's pure and eternal word all that we want to know is that god has spoken and then obedience becomes the very highest order of intelligent acting when the soul gets up to god it has reached the very highest source of authority no man nor body of men can claim obedience to their word because it is theirs and hence the claims of the church of rome are arrogant and impious in her claiming obedience she usurps the prerogative of god and all who yield it rob god of his right she presumes to place herself between god and the conscience and who can do this with impunity when god speaks man is bound to obey happy is he if he does so woe be to him if he does not infidelity may question if god has spoken superstition may place human authority between my conscience and what god has spoken by both alike i am effectually robbed of the word and as a consequence of the deep blessedness of obedience there is a blessing in every act of obedience but the moment the soul hesitates the enemy has the advantage and he will assuredly use it to thrust the soul farther and farther from god thus in the chapter before us the question hath god said was followed by ye shall not surely die that is to say there was first the question raised as to whether god had spoken and then followed by the open contradiction of what god had said this solemn fact is abundantly sufficient to show how dangerous it is to admit near the heart a question as to divine revelation in its fullness and integrity a refined rationalism is very near akin to bold infidelity and the infidelity that dares to judge god's word is not far from the atheism that denies his existence eve would never have stood by to hear god contradicted if she had not previously fallen into looseness and indifference as to his word she too had her phases of faith or to speak more correctly her phases of infidelity she suffered god to be contradicted by a creature simply because his word had lost its proper authority over her heart her conscience and her understanding this furnishes a most solemn warning to all who are in danger of being ensnared by an unhallowed rationalism there is no true security save in a profound faith in the plenary inspiration and supreme authority of all scripture the soul that is endowed with this has a triumphant answer to every objector whether he issue from rome or germany there is nothing new under the sun the self-same evil which is now corrupting the very springs of religious thought and feeling throughout the fairest portion of the continent of europe was that which laid eve's heart in ruins in the garden of eden the first step in her downward course 
was her hearkening to the question, Hath God said? And then onward she went, from stage to stage, until at length she bowed before the serpent and owned him as her God, and the fountain of truth. Yes, my reader, the serpent displaced God, and the serpent's lie God's truth. Thus it was with fallen man, and thus it is with fallen man's posterity. God's word has no place in the heart of the unregenerated man, but the lie of the serpent has. Let the formation of man's heart be examined, and it will be found that there is a place therein for Satan's lie, but none whatever for the truth of God. Hence the force of the word to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. But it is important to observe the mode in which the serpent sought to shake Eve's confidence in God's truth, and thus bring her under the power of infidel reason. It was by shaking her confidence in God's love. He sought to shake her confidence in what God had said, by showing that the testimony was not founded in love. For, said he, God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Verse 5. In other words, there is positive advantage connected with the eating of that fruit of which God is seeking to deprive you. Why, therefore, should you believe God's testimony? You cannot place confidence in one who manifestly does not love you, for if he loved you, why should he prohibit your enjoying a positive privilege? Eve's security against the influence of all this reasoning would have been simple repose in the infinite goodness of God. She should have said to the serpent, I have the fullest confidence in God's goodness, and therefore I deem it impossible that he could withhold any real good from me. If that fruit were good for me, I should surely have it, but the fact of its being forbidden by God proves that I would be no better but much worse off by the eating of it. I am convinced of God's love, and I am convinced of God's truth, and I believe, too, that you are an evil one come to draw my heart away from the fountain of goodness and truth. Get thee behind me, Satan. This would have been a noble reply, but it was not given. Her confidence in truth and love gave way, and all was lost. And so we find that there is just as little place in the heart of fallen man for God's love as there is for God's truth. The heart of man is a stranger to both the one and the other, until renewed by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now it is deeply interesting to turn from Satan's lie in reference to the truth and love of God to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from the bosom of the Father in order to reveal what he really is. Grace and truth, the very things which man lost in his fall, came by Jesus Christ, John 1.17. He was the faithful witness of what God was, Revelation 1.5. Truth reveals God as he is, but this truth is connected with the revelation of perfect grace, and thus the sinner finds, to his unspeakable joy, that the revelation of what God is, instead of being his destruction, becomes the basis of his eternal salvation. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17.3 I cannot know God and not have life. The loss of the knowledge of God was death, 
but the knowledge of God is life. This necessarily makes life a thing entirely outside of ourselves and dependent upon what God is. Let me arrive at what amount of self-knowledge I may, it is not said that this is life eternal, to know themselves. Though, no doubt, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self will go very much together, still eternal life is connected with the former and not with the latter. To know God as he is, is life, and all who know not God shall be punished with everlasting destruction from his presence. It is of the utmost importance to see that what really stamps man's character and condition is his ignorance or knowledge of God. This it is that marks his character here and fixes his destiny hereafter. Is he evil in his thoughts, evil in his words, evil in his actions? It is all the result of his being ignorant of God. On the other hand, is he pure in thought, holy in conversation, gracious in action? It is but the practical result of his knowledge of God. So also as to the future. To know God is the solid ground of endless bliss, everlasting glory. To know him not is everlasting destruction. Thus the knowledge of God is everything. It quickens the soul, purifies the heart, tranquilizes the conscience, elevates the affections, sanctifies the entire character and conduct. Need we wonder, therefore, that Satan's grand design was to rob the creature of the true knowledge of the only true God? He misrepresented the blessed God. He said he was not kind. This was the secret spring of all the mischief. It matters not what shape sin has since taken. It matters not through what channel it has flowed, under what head it has ranged itself, or in what garb it has clothed itself. It is all to be traced to this one thing, namely, ignorance of God. The most refined and cultivated moralist, the most devout religionist, the most benevolent philanthropist, if ignorant of God, is as far from life and true holiness as the publican and the harlot. The prodigal was just as much a sinner, and as positively away from the father, when he had crossed the threshold as when he was feeding swine in the far country. Luke 15, 13-15. So in Eve's case, the moment she took herself out of the hands of God, out of the position of absolute dependence upon and subjection to his word, she abandoned herself to the government of sense, as used of Satan for her entire overthrow. The sixth verse presents three things, namely, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life which three, as the Apostle states, comprehend all that is in the world. These things necessarily took the lead when God was shut out. If I do not abide in the happy assurance of God's love and truth, His grace and faithfulness, I shall surrender myself to the government of some one, or it may be all, of the above principles, and this is only another name for the government of Satan. There is, strictly speaking, no such thing as man's free will. If man be self-governed, he is really governed by Satan, and if not, he is governed by God. Now, the three great agencies by which Satan works are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. 
Those were the things presented by Satan to the Lord Jesus in the temptation. He began by tempting the second man to take himself out of the position of absolute dependence upon God. Command these stones that they be made bread. He asked him to do this, not, as in the case of the first man, to make himself what he was not, but to prove what he was. Then followed the offer of the kingdoms of the world with all their glory. And finally, conducting him to a pinnacle of the temple, he tempted him to give himself, suddenly and miraculously, to the admiration of the assembled people below. Compare Matthew 4, 1-11 with Luke 4, 1-13. The plain design of each temptation was to induce the Blessed One to step from the position of entire dependence upon God and perfect subjection to His will. But all in vain, it is written, was the unvarying reply of the only dependent, self-emptied, perfect man. Others might undertake to manage for themselves, none but God should manage for Him. What an example for the faithful, under all their circumstances! Jesus kept close to Scripture, and thus conquered. Without any other weapon, save the sword of the Spirit, he stood in the conflict and gained a glorious triumph. What a contrast with the first Adam! The one had everything to plead for God, the other had everything to plead against him. The garden with all its delights in the one case, the wilderness with all its privations in the other, confidence in Satan in the one case, confidence in God in the other, complete defeat in the one case, complete victory in the other. Blessed be for ever the God of all grace, who has laid our help on one so mighty to conquer, mighty to save. Let us now inquire how far Adam and Eve realized the serpent's promised advantage. This inquiry will lead us to a deeply important point in connection with the fall of man. The Lord God had so ordered it that in and by the fall man should get what previously he had not, and that was a conscience, a knowledge of both good and evil. This man evidently could not have had before. He could not have known aught about evil inasmuch as evil was not there to be known. He was in a state of innocence which is a state of ignorance of evil. Man got a conscience in and by the fall, and we find that the very first effect of conscience was to make him a coward. Satan had utterly deceived the woman. He had said, Your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. But he had left out a material part of the truth, namely that they should know good without the power to do it and that they should know evil without the power to avoid it. Their very attempt to elevate themselves in the scale of moral existence involved the loss of true elevation. They became degraded, powerless, Satan-enslaved, conscience-smitten, terrified creatures. The eyes of them both were opened, no doubt, but alas, to what a sight! It was only to discover their own nakedness, they opened their eyes upon their own condition, which was wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They knew that they were naked, sad fruit of the tree of knowledge. 
it was not any fresh knowledge of divine excellency which they had attained no fresh beam of divine light from the pure and eternal fountain thereof alas no the very earliest fruit of their disobedient effort after knowledge was the discovery that they were naked now it is well to understand this well too to know how conscience works to see that it can only make cowards of us as being the consciousness of what we are many are astray as to this they think that conscience will bring us to god did it operate thus in the case of adam and eve assuredly not nor will it in the case of any sinner how could it how could the sense of what i am ever bring me to god if not accompanied by the faith of what god is impossible it will produce shame self-reproach remorse anguish it may also give birth to certain efforts on my part to remedy the condition which it discloses but these very efforts so far from drawing us to god rather act as a blind to hide him from our view thus in the case of adam and eve the discovery of their nakedness was followed by an effort of their own to cover it they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons this is the first record we have of man's attempt to remedy by his own device his condition and the attentive consideration thereof will afford us not a little instruction as to the real character of human religiousness in all ages in the first place we see not only in adam's case but in every case that man's effort to remedy his condition is based upon the sense of his nakedness he is confessedly naked and all his works are the result of his being so this can never avail i must know that i am clothed before i can do anything acceptable in the sight of god and this be it observed is the difference between true christianity and human religiousness the former is founded upon the fact of a man's being clothed the latter upon the fact of his being naked the former has for its starting post what the latter has for its goal all that a true christian does is because he is clothed perfectly clothed all that a mere religionist does is in order that he may be clothed this makes a vast difference the more we examine the genius of man's religion in all its phases the more we shall see its thorough insufficiency to remedy his state or even to meet his own sense thereof it may do very well for a time it may avail so long as death judgment and the wrath of god are looked at from a distance if looked at at all but when a man comes to look these terrible realities straight in the face he will find in good truth that his religion is a bed too short for him to stretch himself upon and a covering too narrow for him to wrap himself in the moment adam heard the voice of the lord god in eden he was afraid because as he himself confessed i was naked yes naked although he had his apron on him but it is plain that that covering did not even satisfy his own conscience had his conscience been divinely satisfied he would not have been afraid if our heart condemn us not then have we confidence toward god 1 john 3:20 20 and 21 but if even the human conscience cannot find repose in man's religious efforts 
how much less can the holiness of God? Adam's apron could not screen him from the eye of God, and he could not stand in his presence naked. Therefore he fled to hide himself. This is what conscience will do at all times. It will cause man to hide himself from God, and, moreover, all that his own religiousness offers him is a hiding place from God. This is a miserable provision, inasmuch as he must meet God some time or other, and if he has naught save the sad conscience of what he is, he must be afraid, yea, he must be wretched. Indeed, nothing is needed save hell itself to complete the misery of one who feels he has to meet God, and knows only his own unfitness to meet him. Had Adam known God's perfect love, he would not have been afraid. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 But Adam knew not this, because he had believed the serpent's lie. He thought that God was anything but love, and therefore the very last thought of his heart would have been to venture into his presence. He could not do it. Sin was there, and God and sin can never meet. So long as there is sin on the conscience, there must be the sense of distance from God. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look upon iniquity. Habakkuk 1.13 Holiness and sin cannot dwell together. Sin, wherever it is found, can only be met by the wrath of God. But, blessed of God, there is something beside the conscience of what I am. There is the revelation of what he is, and this latter the fall of man really brought out. God had not revealed himself fully in creation. He had shown his eternal power and Godhead, but he had not told out all the deep secrets of his nature and character. Wherefore, Satan made a grand mistake in coming to meddle with God's creation. He only proved to be the instrument of his own eternal defeat and confusion, and his violent dealing shall forever come down upon his own pate. His lie only gave occasion for the display of the full truth in reference to God. Creation never could have brought out what God was. There was infinitely more in him than power and wisdom. There was love, mercy, holiness, righteousness, goodness, tenderness, long-suffering. Where could all these be displayed but in a world of sinners? God at the first came down to create, and then, when the serpent presumed to meddle with creation, God came down to save. This is brought out in the first words uttered by the Lord God after Adam's fall. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? This question proved two things. It proved that man was lost, and that God had come to seek. It proved man's sin, and God's grace. Where art thou? Amazing faithfulness, amazing grace. Faithfulness to disclose in the very question itself the truth as to man's condition. Grace to bring out, in the very fact of God's asking such a question, the truth as to his character and attitude, in reference to fallen man. Man was lost, but God had come down to look for him. 
to bring him out of his hiding-place, behind the trees of the garden, in order that, in the happy confidence of faith, he might find a hiding-place in himself. This was grace. To create man out of the dust of the ground was power, but to seek man in his lost estate was grace. But who can utter all that is wrapped up in the idea of God's being a seeker? God seeking a sinner. What could the Blessed One have seen in man to lead him to seek for him? Just what the shepherd saw in the lost sheep, or what the woman saw in the lost piece of silver, or what the father saw in the lost son. The sinner is valuable to God, but why he should be so, eternity alone will unfold. How then did the sinner reply to the faithful and gracious inquiry of the blessed God? Alas, the reply only reveals the awful depth of evil into which he had fallen. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman, whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Here we find him actually laying the blame of his shameful fall on the circumstances in which God had placed him, and thus indirectly upon God himself. This has ever been the way with fallen man. Every one and everything is blamed but self. In the case of true conviction, the very reverse is exhibited. Is it not that I have sinned, is the inquiry of a truly humbled soul? Had Adam known himself, how different would have been his style? But he neither knew himself nor God, and therefore, instead of throwing the blame entirely upon himself, he threw it upon God. Here, then, was man's terrible position. He had lost all. His dominion, his dignity, his happiness, his innocence, his purity, his peace, all was gone from him, and, what was still worse, he accused God of being the cause of it. There he stood, a lost, ruined, guilty, and yet self-vindicating, and therefore God-accusing sinner. But just at this point God began to reveal himself and his purposes of redeeming love, and herein lay the true basis of man's peace and blessedness. When man has come to the end of himself, God can show what he is, but not until then. The scene must be entirely cleared of man, and all his vain pretensions, empty boastings, and blasphemous reasonings, ere God can or will reveal himself. Thus it was, when man was hidden behind the trees of the garden, that God unfolded his wondrous plan of redemption through the instrumentality of the bruised seed of the woman. Here we are taught a valuable principle of truth as to what it is which alone will bring a man peacefully and confidingly into the presence of God. It has already been remarked that conscience will never effect this. Conscience drove Adam behind the trees of the garden. Revelation brought him forth into the presence of God. The consciousness of what he was terrified him. The revelation of what God was tranquilized him. This is truly consolatory for a poor, sin-burdened heart. The reality of what I am is met by the reality of what God is, and this is salvation.
there is a point where god and man must meet whether in grace or judgment and that point is where both are revealed as they are happy are they who reach that point in grace woe be to them who will have to reach it in judgment it is with what we are that god deals and it is as he is that he deals with us in the cross i see god descending in grace to the lowest depths not merely of my negative but my positive condition as a sinner this gives perfect peace if god has met me in my actual condition and himself provided an adequate remedy all is eternally settled but all who do not thus by faith see god in the cross will have to meet him by and by in judgment when he will have to deal according to what he is with what they are the moment a man is brought to know his real state he can find no rest until he has found god in the cross and then he rests in god himself he blessed be his name is the rest and hiding place of the believing soul this at once puts human works and human righteousness in their proper place we can say with truth that those who rest in such things cannot possibly have arrived at the true knowledge of themselves it is quite impossible that a divinely quickened conscience can rest in aught save the perfect sacrifice of the son of god all effort to establish one's own righteousness must proceed from ignorance of the righteousness of god adam might learn in the light of the divine testimony about the seed of the woman the worthlessness of his fig-leaf apron the magnitude of that which had to be done proved the sinner's total inability to do it sin had to be put away could man do that nay it was by him it had come in the serpent's head had to be bruised could man do that nay he had become the serpent's slave god's claims had to be met could man do that nay he had already trampled them underfoot death had to be abolished could man do that nay he had by sin introduced it and imparted to it its terrible sting thus in whatever way we view the matter we see the sinner's complete impotency and as a consequence the presumptuous folly of all who attempt to assist god in the stupendous work of redemption as all assuredly do who think to be saved in any other way but by grace through faith however though adam might and through grace did see and feel that he could never accomplish all that had to be done yet god revealed himself as about to achieve every jot and tittle thereof by the seed of the woman in short we see that he graciously took the entire matter into his own hands he made it altogether a question between himself and the serpent for although the man and the woman were called upon individually to reap in various ways the bitter fruits of their sin yet it was to the serpent that the lord god said because thou hast done this the serpent was the source of the ruin and the seed of the woman was to be the source of the redemption adam heard all this and believed it and in the power of that belief he called his wife's name the mother of all living this was a precious fruit of faith in god's revelation 
Looking at the matter from nature's point of view, Eve might be called the mother of all dying. But in the judgment of faith, she was the mother of all living. His mother called him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. It was through the sustaining energy of faith that Adam was enabled to endure the terrible results of what he had done. It was God's wondrous mercy to allow him to hear what he said to the serpent, before he was called to listen to what he had to say to himself. Had it not been so, he must have been plunged in despair. It is despair to be called upon to look at myself, without being able to look at God as revealed in the cross for my salvation. There is no child of fallen Adam who could bear to have his eyes opened to the reality of what he is and what he has done, without being plunged in despair, unless he could take refuge in the cross. Hence, in that place to which all who reject Christ must finally be consigned, hope cannot come. There men's eyes will be opened to the reality of what they are and what they have done, but they will not be able to find relief and refuge in God. What God is will, then, involve hopeless perdition, as truly as what God is doth now involve eternal salvation. The holiness of God will, then, be eternally against them, as it is now that in which all who believe are called to rejoice. The more I realize the holiness of God now, the more I know my security, but in the case of the lost that very holiness will be but the ratification of their eternal doom. Solemn, unspeakably solemn, reflection. We shall now briefly glance at the truth presented to us in God's providing coats for Adam and Eve. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them. We have there, in figure, the great doctrine of divine righteousness set forth. The robe which God provided was an effectual covering, because he provided it, just as the apron was an ineffectual covering, because man had provided it. Moreover, God's coat was founded upon bloodshedding. Adam's apron was not. So also, now, God's righteousness is set forth in the cross. Man's righteousness is set forth in the works, the sin-stained works, of his own hands. When Adam stood clothed in the coat of skin, he could not say, I was naked, nor had he any occasion to hide himself. The sinner may feel perfectly at rest when, by faith, he knows that God has clothed him. But to feel at rest till then can only be the result of presumption or ignorance. To know that the dress I wear and in which I appear before God is of his own providing must set my heart at perfect rest. There can be no true permanent rest in aught else. The closing verses of this chapter are full of instruction. Fallen man, in his fallen state, must not be allowed to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, for that would entail upon him endless wretchedness in this world. To take of the tree of life and eat and live for ever in our present condition would be unmingled misery. The tree of life can only be tasted in resurrection. To live for ever in a frail tabernacle, in a body of sin and death, would be intolerable. 
wherefore the lord god drove out the man he drove him out into a world which everywhere exhibited the lamentable results of his fall the cherubim and the flaming sword too forbid fallen man to pluck the fruit of the tree of life while god's revelation pointed him to the death and resurrection of the seed of the woman as that wherein life was to be found beyond the power of death thus adam was a happier and a safer man outside the bounds of paradise than he had been within for this reason that within his life depended upon himself whereas outside it depended upon another even a promised christ and as he looked up and beheld the cherubim and the flaming sword he could bless the hand that had set them there to keep the way of the tree of life inasmuch as the same hand had opened a better a safer and a happier way to that tree if the cherubim and flaming sword stopped up the way to paradise the lord jesus christ has opened a new and living way into the holiest of all i am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me compare john fourteen six hebrews ten twenty in the knowledge of this the believer now moves onward through a world which is under a curse where the traces of sin are visible on all hands he has found his way by faith to the bosom of the father and while he can secretly repose there he is cheered by the blessed assurance that the one who has conducted him thither is gone to prepare a place in the many mansions of the father's house and that he will soon come again and receive him unto himself amid the glory of the father's kingdom thus in the bosom the house and the kingdom of the father the believer finds his present portion his future home and reward end of chapter three